Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter number 10. 1 Samuel 10. And for those that uh, might be joining us for the first time on a Sunday night, we are in week number three of a new series where we're studying the life of King Saul. And uh, this is week number three, the third message in this uh, series. The first one, we studied all of 1 Samuel 9. We looked at 1 Samuel 9, and we, we studied why it, Saul was the first king of Israel, and we studied why did Israel need or have a king. That was not God's plan. Israel was a theocracy. They were ruled by God. And we looked at the fact that it was because of the rebellion of the people's hearts, they wanted to be like the world. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And by the way, that same challenge is there for Christians today, that we want to be like everybody else. We, we don't, and, and God, there's some things about God's people. He said, your lives should operate differently. You should, you should, things should, should work differently in your lives. And, and we saw they called for a king. And Samuel, the, the priest, the prophet, he comes and he tells them, he warns them and says, be careful what you wish for. In fact, that was, I think that was the title of the first message in the series, be careful what you wish for. And, and then we looked at, the last one was the entire chapter of chapter 10, and we looked at a, a good start, the fact that King Saul had a good start. And uh, Saul was an unknown, he was a tall unknown son from, from a, the tribe of Benjamin, the least of his, his family said, the least of his tribe. His tribe was one of the least there, just this unknown guy. And he was out on an errand for his dad trying to find his dad's lost donkeys. And while he was there, they couldn't find it. The, uh, the, the, the servant that was with him said, well, let's stop. I know there's a, a man of God around here, a prophet. And they stopped and saw Samuel and, and Saul finds out from Samuel, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Kind of a shock. And so now today, we're going to, we're going to start where we, where we left off in chapter 10, and then we're going to look at chapter 11. We've already looked at 9 and, and the first half of 10. We're going to look at the last few verses of 10, then we're going to jump into chapter 11. And tonight, we look at Saul's coronation. Saul's coronation. And there are, I think there will be some things that we can apply to our lives, but tonight really is a little more of a Bible study. These, probably next week, I already know where we'll be next week as we move into chapter 12. Um, these first four are kind of introductory lessons to really set the scene to help us understand who Saul was, how he got where he was, what was he like, so that we can more clearly learn from the, the mistakes that he ends up making and the things that happen in his life to hopefully keep ourselves from making some of the same. And so last week we studied his good start, and, and to be honest, tonight we're going to continue to look at his good start and, and his public uh, introduction as the king of Israel and coronation there to the, to the people of Israel. And so we're going to see some characteristics of King Saul's early leadership. And I think it's vital that we learn these things by way of introduction so that we can fully comprehend and grasp who he became. We're going to look at a good bit of scripture, and it is a little more of a Bible study, so you're going to need to follow along and kind of pay attention on purpose, if you will. As I always say, God's word is powerful. I think that you'll learn some things that will be a help to you in your life. I don't know that it'll be the most 
entertaining, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, entertaining message. I don't have a ton of stories or video clips or jokes or anything, but we're just going to try to dig into the scripture here and, and get something from God's word. Notice 1 Samuel chapter 10. Let's begin in verse number 20. And when Samuel, Samuel is the priest, when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. And we see here, King Saul at this point, I kind of view that as maybe a little bit of fear, but also still humble. He was humble. He wasn't looking for the limelight. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people? And all the people shouted and said, What church? What did they say? The last four words of verse 24? God save the king. So he introduces, and they're looking for him. They can't find Saul, and God tells them where, where he is. They go get him. He stands there. He's very impressive. And they say, is there anybody better that would be your leader? And they all say, God save the king. Saul's coronation here. And then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And now I want us to see, we're going to see a few characteristics of Saul's early leadership here. And I think it's important that we see these again so that we can compare them as we keep moving through the study on his life. Notice verse number 26. Would you read it aloud with me? Verse 26, ready? Begin. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. And I, I would suggest to you as I look at this, so Saul is introduced, first time he's introduced, and it says, and he went home, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. I see the first thing here about Saul's early leadership was, I would suggest it was an effective leadership. He was an effective leader. What do I mean by that? It, it, it doesn't matter your title. If nobody's following you, you're not a leader. The fact that there was a band of men who already had, God had knit their hearts toward him and they had already jumped on and said, this is our leader. We're willing to give our lives for this cause. We'll follow this man. Showed us there was some effectiveness of his leadership. One of the greatest metrics of the effectiveness of a leader is whether people are following him. I didn't say it's the only metric, but it's, a, it's, it's one of the greatest metrics. Are, are people following him? Are they with him? Are they supporting him? Are they joining him in his calling as a leader? No matter the title, if no one is following you, you aren't a leader. I don't care if your title is dad. If your children aren't following you, you're not the leader in their life, and neither am I. My title is pastor. If, if God's people are not, work, if we're not working together, if we're not on the same page, I'm not the leader that I should be at work. If you're a supervisor or a boss or whatever it might be. And we see here that this band of men, and I want you to see a couple of characteristics here of a greatly used leader or an effective leader. Number one, I see here underneath this effective leadership, I see that he had teammates. He had some people who were willing to serve with him. There went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. And an effective leader is, leaders cannot accomplish what they're called to do by themselves. It's the whole point and definition of a leader 
If you could do it by yourself, you're, you're not a leader. You're, I don't know what the word there would be. You're just getting the job done by yourself. The whole point of a leader is to equip, to engage, to, to bring together, to uh, maximize the energies of a group of people together. A coach. Why is a coach is a leader? He's supposed to get the most out of that group of players in whatever sport it is that they're playing. At work, a boss or a supervisor or a CEO, they're a leader. The goal is that they get a group of people together. Why? Because together we can accomplish more than we ever could apart. One reason, as I know and I've now experienced some and I've heard stories and talked with people that have been in our church since the opening uh, week, one reason this church has been so greatly used in countless lives is not just because of the leader or leaders, not just because of the pastors or assistant pastors or, or, or staff members, not just because those we might view as the top of the flow chart, if you will, if we're using business terminology, and I don't necessarily like that. We're co-laborers and we're servants, but God does give spiritual leadership. One of the reasons is not just because of the leaders that are in that possession, it is because of the host of godly men and women who God has touched their hearts and they have joined together in that vision. I can say I'm the pastor of Liberty Baptist Church, but, but as God gives, gives a, maybe a message from his word, or a, when I say a vision, I don't mean something mystical, but, but a, a purpose or a plan. Let's, let's do this, and let's have this outreach, and let's make this difference over in, in this missions work, and let's, let's go to um, take care of this special need, and let's try to reach out in this special outreach day. I can say that all in the world, but if God doesn't touch the heart of people to get behind that vision, our church isn't going to accomplish very much at all. And an effective leader has to have some co-laborers, some teammates, some folks that God touches the heart. And one prayer of mine as we move into 2021, and I've talked to the staff already about this, is that, that I, starting with me, and then we as, as, as those that serve as assistant pastors, we, we'll do a better job of equipping and raising up more men and women in our church family to lead and to serve. And there are a host that lead and serve in different ways in our church, um, probably in most weeks there are dozens, scores, and some weeks hundreds of people that serve in different capacities. And I'm thankful for all of that. But I, I, my prayer is that we'll see that multiply. That we'll do a better job uh, equipping and encouraging and helping and training more people to be more effective. Why? Because the need of the gospel is not smaller than it was a year ago or five years ago or a decade ago or 40 years ago in Orange County. It's greater. So my prayer is that God will touch the heart and will continue to work. In spiritual work, God touches the hearts of people to commit to the cause of Christ. And my prayer is that God would increase that tribe at liberty. But we see here in, in Saul early on, his effective leadership, he had some teammates. Notice what also happens to effective leaders. Notice it says in verse number 27, 1 Samuel 10, verse 27, But the children of Belial said, how shall this man save us? And they, what church? They despised him and brought him no presents. That was very disrespectful on his appointment, but he held his peace. But the children of Belial said, how shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. A great way to have no critics is to be nothing, do nothing, say nothing. If you try to step out and, 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 and make something happen or do something of any significance with your life, there are going to be critics. There are going to be people that don't like what you've done or how you've done it and what you're trying to accomplish. And, and we see here King Saul, he had his critics. Not only did he have teammates, but he had critics. And then thirdly, what do I see with effective leaders? He had wisdom. What does it say here? He held his peace. 
my nature, if, if criticized or attacked, my nature, especially if I feel that it's unjustified, is to defend. My nature is to present my argument. My nature is to present my case, to, to explain, blow somebody out of the water with an email or a Facebook post or a text message, explain how they're, they're completely off base, they're completely wrong, and maybe there's a time in wisdom to, to maybe at times stand up against unjust criticism. I'm not saying that there's never a time or place for that, but often all that is is pride. All that is is us trying to make ourselves look better. And what does it say about Saul? But he held his peace. Don't get distracted if you're in leadership by your critics. Stay focused. And, and by the way, the critics can come from within the church. It can come from the community in 2020. It can come from social media and online. It can come from blogs and podcasts. Stay focused on the task. Saul here faced his first leadership challenge before he had really even officially started his reign. Before he'd even done anything, said anything, enacted anything, started anything, he already has people that don't like him. Why? What had he done? They just didn't like him because he was a leader and he wasn't the one they picked. I just don't like that guy. That, that, how is he going to save us? Who's this guy? The son of Kish. We don't know this guy. What has he ever done? And it was nothing Saul had done. It was just the spirit of those people that said, we're going to criticize. And Saul held his peace. I want you to see now, jumping into chapter 11, verse number 1, Saul's going to face his first challenge. Notice chapter 11, verse number 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. Can we put that map up there? And I want you to see uh, where it says Gad up there, right above it in red, it says Jabesh Gilead. This is, this is part of Israel. This is the, where the tribe of Gad was. And notice to the right where the orange dotted line is, it says Ammon. Well, it says here, Nahash the Ammonite. So this is where this group of people is from. They have made their way and they have surrounded Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead was not prepared to defend themselves against these intruders. And they understood, these are Israelites in Jabesh Gilead. They understood that if they didn't make some kind of a deal, they were going to lose everything, probably die. And so they come and they say, they say to them, notice in verse 1, they said, make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. Okay. We'll be your servants, but make a promise of certain, like, you know, ground rules, negotiate. Tell us what the terms of this, of this truce is, and we'll be your servants. We'll do what you want, but just let's make sure we've got the ground rules. Make sure it's not too harsh. And this was the answer from Nahash, the Ammonite, the leader of this group that was surrounding them. He said, we'll make a promise with you if you let us thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. A permanent star. He said, okay, we won't kill you. We're not going to take all your stuff. We're not going to rob all your stuff if you let us pluck out every one of your right eyes. And there were multiple reasons why Nahash wanted to do that. One of those was that it would be humiliating and, and it would mark them forever. Another one was it would make it so that they were not as good at fighting. And in those days, a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat, their depth perception wouldn't have been as good. It would have made them um, le less fighters. And the other thing that it would have done is it would have shown the rest of Israel, we're stronger than you. It says it here, bring a reproach upon Israel. You can't stand up against us. And it would put fear into the others of God's people. 
interesting that the word Nahash means serpent or snake. And as I studied this, Nahash's plan often resembles Satan's attacks in our lives. What did they do? He encamped around Jabesh Gilead. What does Satan do often? He surrounds us. The enemy surrounds us. And it seems like everywhere we look is another attack or another temptation or something that would hurt us or or cause us pain. By the way, what do I see here from this? That, That Satan can't hurt us without our agreement. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It was, they had to surrender to Nahash rather than put up a fight. What does the Bible say? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And here, if they were going to, they were going to submit to surrender to Nahash, uh, what do I see also? A parallel between the, the old serpent, the devil, and Nahash. Uh, he wants to humiliate us. Look at my power over the people of God. He wants to blind us so we are less able to fight against him. And Satan will seek to blind you to the truth. And if he can't blind you completely, he'll blind you partially. That right eye. And then what else does he do? He wants to bring a reproach to the name of God. If Satan can cause permanent scars in your life and in mine because of bad decisions we've made, guess what happens? People can look and reproach the name of Christ. That's what happened here. They wanted to pluck the eye out. Why? It was a permanent scar of a bad decision from these inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. And if they had been able to do that, everybody that saw them, it would have been a reproach. Oh, the people of God, they're weak. The people, God isn't strong enough to protect his own people. Not only are they weak, but he's weak. And I see this here. Now notice verse number three. Continuing on in the story, let's see what happens with King Saul. And the elders, the the leaders of Jabesh said unto him, give us seven days respite. By the way, always wise to take some time before you make life-changing decisions. Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Basically, they said, give us a week to send out an SOS and find out, is there anybody that will fight for us? Do we have any friends out there? Is there anybody that will help us? And and again, I don't want to over, over, um, 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 give over application here but also if you're in trouble reach out to some people if you're struggling and 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 reach out and don't be ashamed to say we need some help the the attack in my life is bigger than me will somebody help me it's okay to admit that you're not okay and and we see here they said okay give us seven days give us a week if we can't find anybody to help us you can have our right eyes and i guess we'll just have only we'll, we'll all we'll all only have one eye the rest of our lives verse number four then came the messengers to gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people. Then all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. Again, I still see here, even though he was a king, he was humble, he was diligent, still serving out in the field, serving the animals. And Saul said, what aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Have you ever answered a phone call and the person on the other line was crying? And what is it? What's going on? What's happening? I'm sure many of you have been in that situation before. What what, what happened? Talk to me. What happened here? That's what happened. Saul comes in and everybody's crying. He's like, can somebody tell me what's going on? Why is, why is, when I left this morning, everything was good. I spent the day out in the field with the herd. I'm coming back and, and chaos. Everybody's crying, weeping. What happened? And they said, and they told him the story. They said, well, there's the, the Ammonites have come in to up there in the, near the tribe of Gad and Jabesh Gilead. They've encamped them. And if, if nothing changes, they're going to overtake them in their city there. They're going to cast out. They're going to pluck out their right eyes. And notice I see here not only effective leadership, but spiritual leadership. Would you read verse 6, 11, verse 6 aloud with me? 
Ready? Begin. And the Spirit of the Lord God, I'm sorry, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. Spiritual leadership, the Spirit of God came upon Saul, and those that God gives the opportunity to influence others, may, may it be uh, with the Spirit of God in our lives. May we, husbands, wives, moms, dads, friends, neighbors, teachers, pastors, workers, whatever, where, where, military, wherever it may be, may, may the Spirit of God guide our hearts and our minds. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. We saw that back there in, uh, in uh, let's see here, verse 6 of the previous chapter, chapter 10, verse 6, and the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. We see Samuel telling him this is going to happen, and the Spirit of God came upon him in verse 6. We see spiritual leadership, and then I see strong leadership, verse 7. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people. Isn't that interesting how the fear of God comes real fast when you get a, a package like that in the mail? And they came out with one consent. Kind of sounds like something from like a mafia movie, doesn't it? All of a sudden there's an ox cut up. And they, 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 they cut up this ox and, they've got the, the, and they just sent it with messengers everywhere. They, they, they sent it through UPS, Amazon Prime. They got it to all the corners of Israel. And they said, deliver it to everywhere. And people are getting these packages of raw ox meat that's bloody. And, and they're looking at it. They're like, what is going on here? And the message said, what's it saying there? Who sent us that? Is that, is that for dinner? Are we having a barbecue? What, what's that for? And it, well, it says here, if we're not willing to fight for our country, if we're not willing to follow our leader, that's what's going to happen to our ox. And it's amazing, the fear of the Lord fell upon all of them. They all went out with one consent. We're, we're with this thing. Let's get out there and fight. Notice verse 8. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. They said, All right. So we've got the group. Everybody came out really fast. They got their stuff. They got their, they got their, their, their fighting clothes on. They got their weapons. We've got 300,000. We've got 20,000, 30,000. We're ready. All right. Somebody run real quick and go tell Jabesh, tell them by the time it gets hot tomorrow, by the middle of the day tomorrow, you're going to have backups. You're going to have reinforcements. How did that happen? How did, you, how did he gather together there in verse number 8? How did he gather uh, 330,000 people? It was strong leadership. And may I say this? It shows us Saul didn't back down from the challenge. He didn't back down from the enemies. He didn't back down from the critics. He showed great courage. He showed great faith. But may I say this? Sometimes leaders' actions can seem a little unconventional or even a little crazy or overboard to the majority. That seems a little crazy to me. Send a bunch of, of oxen all around the country, and sometimes a strong leader will do something that for those that maybe haven't been called to that position of leadership might seem like, was that necessary? Was that really what, what needed to be done? 
But I want to suggest, as we see here at times, a leader has to have courage and faith that maybe the rest of the, the people don't have. That's why God maybe put him there as a leader. Sometimes parents, you have to have courage and faith that your children don't have. I believe there will be, or maybe there already has been times when as a pastor, I have to have faith and courage that maybe some in our church do not have. That doesn't mean that I'm better or I'm, I'm, I'm more spiritual. That just means sometimes a leader is called to show some strength that the rest of the people haven't shown. What did the rest of the people do when they heard the message? They wept and wailed. Remember that? It was all hope is gone. What did he do? He said, go chop up that ox. I got a plan. That's two very different responses. God places people in positions of leadership sometimes because they're able or willing to do some things that others might not be able to. And, and, and may I say, even if you don't always understand it, if a leader in your life is not contradicting Scripture, don't default to criticizing strong leaders' actions. Here's what happens. Here's the reality. All of us, there's no perfect leader other than Christ and, and God the Father. And, and so all of us have seen at times strong leaders who mishandle their authority. And sometimes strong leaders can mishandle their authority and it can become abusive leadership that hurts people. And if we're not careful, then what we do is we equate any strong leader is an abusive leader. That's not true. What Saul had done here was within God's will. And, and sometimes God calls for a strong leader to stand up. And we sometimes, especially in the day and age in which we live, uh, where, where we don't necessarily, every man kind of wants to do that, which is right in his own eyes. We don't necessarily want to have to submit to any leadership, God's leadership, the Bible's leadership. It's whatever, whatever is your truth. You live your truth. Whatever makes you feel good, you do those things. And so any type of strong leadership sometimes in our society or in our culture is pushed back and is automatically labeled as abusive leadership. Strong leadership can sometimes be abusive, but strong leadership is not always abusive leadership. Sometimes it's just leadership. And, and, and again, leadership can definitely be abused, but don't misinterpret every strong or bold thing a leader does as being wrong or out of bounds. Don't always buck against and fight against strong leadership. It is often strong leadership that is needed to rally the troops that otherwise wouldn't have had the courage to follow. Support strong, and by the way, this is not a pastor talking to church members about worship and follow me. These are biblical principles in any area of life where there is leadership. Do we understand? I think we know my heart enough. This is not all an application of I get to do whatever I want and you have to submit to that. And this goes along with my next statement. Support strong leadership when it is spirit-filled and spirit-led. If it doesn't contradict scripture, sometimes leaders see things that others can't. I served 15 years as the administrative pastor of what would be considered a mega church. On a Sunday morning, we would have somewhere around 2,500, 2,500 people on a Sunday morning. Had a staff of 60 or 70 full-time staff members that I helped to oversee and administrate. Um, and, and I was there for 15 years. I'll be frank. I felt like I had seen a whole lot in ministry. I had helped to hire and with staff and, and as staff left and helped to run different ministries and plan major events and conferences that would have more than a thousand people. And I, there was, a, and led a, a couples class and, and coached sports and taught in school and taught college classes. And there, were, there was a variety to the, the ministry opportunities I was given in that position. And I'll be honest, I felt like after having been on staff for 12, 13, 14 years, I saw and understood everything. And there were times I would get frustrated with my leader, who was my father-in-law and my pastor, 
because I thought, I, I see what's happening. I don't understand his decision there. That doesn't make sense. And, and, and it wasn't unscriptural. It just was something I didn't understand. And I remember one time when, when God was transitioning us here, and I was talking with Pastor Tomlinson, who had been a, a lead pastor for about 40 years or so at that point, and I was talking to him. And he said, Ryan, he said, there are some things you will not understand until you sit in this chair, speaking of the chair of the lead pastor. And I thought, that, I'm sure there's some stuff like that, that that's true. And, and again, I'm not trying to sound braggadocious or exclusive. I'm just telling you what I have learned in my own life. And I thought, well, I, I've seen, I mean, the church I came from was very large and, and had, had a lot of stuff. And I, I've seen a whole lot. And you know, the truth of the matter is, there are some things now I look back at that as a staff member frustrated me or I didn't understand and why would he handle that? And I find sometimes myself making some of the same decisions and, and seeing things in a different way. And sometimes it was frustrating for me as a staff member and I look back and say, now I understand why he wasn't as excited about that or why he was a little more concerned about that or why he made a big deal. I just told Ryan right before church, uh, does, does, do you know why the gym door is wide open? He's like, no, I asked Doug, do you know why the gym, are we using the gym tonight? And they were like, no, I don't, I don't know why. It, I said, we need to make sure that door's locked up. I and, and it's funny, as a staff member, I wouldn't have cared what doors were open. And what, but as a pastor, you, I don't want kids wandering off into a building all by themselves. I don't want adults take, you know, going somewhere they shouldn't be. I don't want teenagers meeting somewhere they shouldn't be. And, and it's amazing how things that I would have never thought about as a staff member, now in the chair that I sit in, I see them in a different light. And there are some things in our lives that, that some things that leaders see that others can't. And, and I look at the history of our church and Mariner's Church here in, in Orange County. We had the property swap in the mid-90s. From both sides, now that I look at it, both sides of that property swap, leaders could have questioned the decisions. Or people in the churches, the ministries could have questioned the decisions that those leaders made to make that property swap. And actually, from what I understand, there, on the Mariner's side, there was a little bit of that. You see, Mariners, we swapped a property on Bonita Canyon, where their property is now. We swapped a property that was worth about, at the time, 4 or $5 million less than this property. And we didn't even swap. They were giving away about $5 million in equity. Keith, you've been a deacon for many years in our church. That could be a tough one to convince the deacons of. I want to bring this, and they didn't, their church is set up differently than ours. Their whole church didn't have to vote on it. But for us, I would, I'd like to bring this to the church. I really think this could be great for the future of our church. But pastor, you're giving away $5 million in equity. That, that could be criticized, and from what I understand, in some circles it was at the time. But if you visit their property and their facility, it's obvious that the pastor at that time, Kenton Beshore, had a vision that many people didn't. And this is a beautiful property, but this property is landlocked. It's about 10 acres. We're not expanding anywhere. There's jamboree here. There's bison there. And unless God, you know, just does a miracle and gives us this building back here, which he could, but unless that happens, there's nowhere for us to expand. And you go on their property, and what they were getting was much less than what they had here at the time, but God had given him a vision for the future of what he believed God could do in that church. By the way, Pastor Tomlinson could have easily been criticized because coming here was a risky decision. This ministry was, this, this campus was too big for our ministry. 
it, the, the, the maintenance of this and the, the, the care of this and the cost of this, the electric bill, it could have killed the church financially. The church just a few years before we got this property was in a place that they were having to struggle to pay electric bills and, and staff payroll. And now we're taking on a, a, a property that has multiplied numbers of square footage from what we had before. And it could, I don't know if it was or not. I've not asked Pastor Thomas in that, but very easily people could have criticized. It was, this was not the safe thing to do for Liberty to come here and for Mariners to go there. But I look at that and there were two leaders, I believe, that saw some things that maybe everybody in their church family didn't see. And I look back now and God has definitely moved this ministry forward in ways that we may have never moved forward had God not opened this door of faith. And maybe the same could be said of Mariners. I look at that and it's a reminder to me of the fact that sometimes God shows leaders. And again, I'm not trying to be mystical, uh, but, but God uses leaders to do some things by faith that others might view as not being the right decision. If, if anything a leader does is against scripture, I'm not justifying that. Please understand what I'm saying. Pastor Tomlinson, raising funds for two buildings while the school was dying and was down to 15 students. That doesn't seem like the wisest vision, Todd. Give some millions so we can close our school in a few years. But God gave Pastor Tomlinson some courage and some faith and some vision and a host of people whose hearts God had touched. And now every week just about there are families, no, not just about, every week there are families sitting in our church. Today, four baptized, another family sitting right here, another family visiting for the very, another single man visiting for the very first time. And every week people are being reached and touched by the power of the gospel through the ministry of Newport Christian School. I have to imagine that wasn't easy times of decision. Don't always buck against strong leadership if it's spirit-led and backed by Scripture. Number four, what do we see in verse 11? I'm sorry, no, verse, uh, let's go there. So they, they, uh, verse nine we read, let's read verse number 10. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out unto you and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. So they said, all right, guys, give us one more night with both of our eyes. We'll come on out tomorrow. You can pluck our right eyes out because they knew that, that help was coming. Verse 11, notice this. I see victorious leadership, verse 11. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies. He had some wisdom, some strategy, how to handle this battle. And they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. This one that just a few days earlier, the men of Jabesh Gilead were willing to pluck their eyes out and become indentured slaves for the rest of their lives. That, that powerful army that surrounded them now had been scattered as such. There were not enough, there were not enough of them that two of them were together. It was one dude over here and one guy over there, and they couldn't find any of their comrades. They had been completely decimated, completely destroyed. When God, God used a strong leader that was a spiritual leader, that was an effective leader that rallied some people around him. He stepped out in faith. He stepped out in courage, and God wrought a great victory. We see victorious leadership. A great victory was won because a, a leader was willing to lead God's people into battle. And again, a reminder, church, there are no great victories without great battles. And then I see number five, secure leadership. Verse number 12. And the people said unto Samuel, who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Saul's riding a wave of, of great job approval ratings in the polls. 
He is trending on Twitter. Saul is the man. We can't wait to have this guy leading us. And people came to Samuel and said, who was it that doubted this guy's leadership? Let's have it. Let's get some revenge. Let's put him to death. By the way, Saul could have done that. Notice verse number 13. And Saul said, there shall not a man be put to death this day. For today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Him putting some people to death would have been what? A flex of his personal power. But Saul was secure at this time in his leadership. It wasn't about his name. It was about his name. We don't need to put anybody to death. This is not a me against them battle. This is God's work. God did a great victory. Let's not take the focus off that. Let them go. We'll, we'll let them figure that out on their own. And, and, and a reminder for us as we look at our own leadership, a secure spiritual leader will not be seeking revenge on his critics or seeking to mistreat or hurt those who have sought to hurt him. And I say that again, a secure spiritual leader will not be seeking revenge on his critics or seeking to mistreat or hurt those who have sought to hurt him. Satan tried to destroy the kingdom from outside opponents, Nahash and the Ammonites, and when that didn't work, what did he do? He tried to turn the nation against itself, and Saul didn't allow that discord to develop. A secure leader will seek God-honoring unity over his self-serving personal agenda. He will care more about the health of the group than of his own name. He's not going to get down in the dirt of a mudslinging contest. A spiritual, secure leader will not seek glory for himself. What did Saul say? The Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. This is God. A secure, spiritual leader will not say, look at what I have built. Look at what I have done. Look at who I am. They will say, look at what God has done in and through us. For a secure, spiritual leader, it's not about revenge. It's not about lifting up his name. It's not about getting even with critics. It's not about making people worship him or think how great he is. And by the way, something's going to happen because this isn't who Saul's going to be in a couple chapters. But right now, he's a very secure, spiritual leader pointing the glory to God and not himself. Not only had Saul defeated the Ammonites in this chapter, he also defeated the enemies of his own pride, insecurity, and revenge. There were outward and inward battles handled very well by Saul. And then we see in the last point, we see celebrated leadership. Verse number 14. Then said Samuel to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. We don't know exactly. There, that may have been Gilgal. May have been one of the places where the group of critics had been concentrated. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is Samuel said, hey, while God has wrought this victory, let's go to Gilgal and let's rejoice and celebrate the leader God has given to us. His official final coronation and celebration of his leadership here. And when there is unity in a, in a nation, in a family, in a church, in a business, when there is unity, there can be great victory and rejoicing. When there is division, 
all progress ceases. In Mark, Jesus said, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. God used these attacks here to bring unity. And again, often God will use difficult times in the life of a family, in the life of a marriage, in the life of a church, in the life of a ministry, in the life of a group of people. God will use difficult times to bring great victory and to strengthen his people, to bring unity, to bring rejoicing. Rejoicing and victory are a byproduct of effective, spiritual, strong, secure leadership. And so what can we take away here? This is all, I told you, more of a Bible study, and it's really all kind of just introduction to teach us who Saul was and how he started out. But I think some of the takeaways is we, all of us, we ought to support our God-given leadership. Husbands, wives, children, teens, your parents step out by faith or they do something you don't quite understand. And again, if it's abusive or something, that, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not giving a justification for fleshly, carnal, sinful, abusive leadership. But teens, you don't understand why your parents say no to that. You don't understand why they're setting that up in your life in that way. You know what we ought to do? If God has placed God-given leadership in our lives, let God touch your heart, a band of men that will follow that God-given leadership. Support the God-given leadership in your life. Teens, husbands, wives, employees, church members, get in the battle. Commit to the cause. Let's work together for God's glory. And when God has his hand upon a spiritual leader and a host of spiritual people join together with that leader, incredible victories can be won. I want you to remember these experiences and these characteristics as we continue to study the life of Saul. Next week, I'm going to bring a message next Sunday night, Lord willing, on the big if between starting right and ending right. But I want to say that last statement one more time. When God has his hand upon a spiritual leader and a host of spiritual people join together with that leader, incredible victories can be won. God can bring great unity, great victory, great rejoicing. We see here Saul winning victories outside, outside attacks, and winning victories of internal attacks of pride and revenge and insecurity. And would God help us to be like the King Saul of 1 Samuel 11? A strong, spiritual, effective, secure, courageous, faith-filled leader seeking to fulfill God's plan for our lives. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.